You are listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, through a unique set of circumstances, I've been able to spend quality time with Navy SEALs, uh, which is fun because they have great stories. Because when they're at home training in the States, they do what I think a lot of dudes would love to do on a daily basis. Uh, So I remember visiting with one right after he had gotten back from drive fast school, and he was showing me how to take a vehicle up to 90 miles an hour and then make a 90 degree turn by using the handbrake. And I thought, great, I'll use that next time I'm late for church or whatever. Uh, I remember visiting with one after he had gotten back from lockpick school, and I saw him right when he had gotten back, and we were asking him how it went, and apparently the final for the class is a group of guys jump you, beat you up, handcuff you, throw you in a trunk, and then you have to get out. It's kind of a pass-fail final. And so he got out and uh, emerged because he made it to the wedding we were at, but he said, yeah, so I got out of the handcuffs, out of the trunk, and just as an added, you know, like to show them I'm capable, I also escaped from all my clothes, just to let them know that no one can hold me down. I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing. And uh, on and on, they do incredible things. So I remember visiting with one after he had got back from uh, HALO school. HALO's an acronym. It stands for High Altitude Low Opening. It's a parachuting school. And it's not just for uh, Navy SEALs, all manner of branches of the military do it, but it's a fairly intense school. You spend maybe half a day in a classroom, and then they're throwing you out of airplanes. And as we were watching this video, I remember we watched it, and, and as it began, you see the guys, they got them in these baby blue jumpsuits, and they all look nervous. And I remember when the first guy got up there, like, even if you've never parachuted in your life, you kind of know that when you get out of a plane, you're supposed to kind of plane out, face the earth. I remember when the first guy jumped out of the plane, he just started running. And we were watching him up there, and they're like, there's no traction up there, man, lean, right? And uh, several of the other guys did lean, but they would open their mouths, which makes your cheeks flap like crazy and make you look silly. And so it started out looking crazy, but with every successive jump, uh, they would learn some new skill, like how to turn their bodies with exact movements or how to tack at over 100 miles an hour. And so with each jump, they started to look less and less silly and more and more impressive. Until I remember as the video was coming to an end and we watched their last jump, I noticed in the room the dynamics that nobody was laughing anymore. And as we watched them come to the plane, they weren't in the baby blues anymore. They were in dark colors, jungle greens, blacks, had about 60 pounds of gear strapped to them, including weapons. When they walked up to the plane, they didn't look nervous. When the time came to leap out, they did it without hesitation. And as I watched them descend to the earth, I remember it struck me why none of us were laughing. Because we suddenly remembered what all this was about. These weren't guys parachuting for fun. These were warriors on a mission. High altitude so that the enemy can't hear the plane. Low opening so you spend minimal amount of time as an open target. And the reason they're doing this is because they're training to insert behind enemy lines, to rescue those who are in jeopardy and to wreak havoc upon those who oppress men. And I remember so distinctly as I watched that video, I thought to myself, now that is Christmas. You say, what do you mean by that? I don't know what you tell people when they ask you what Christmas means to you. 
For some of you, maybe you were like, Christmas is about family, you know, or Christmas is about Thanksgiving, but, you know, more amplified than Thanksgiving. Or maybe if you're spiritual, you're like, Christmas is about Jesus, but it was way smaller. I don't know what you say, but can I give you something else when Christmas rolls again again to say that would be biblical when someone asks you, what does Christmas mean to you? You can say, Christmas means destruction. Yeah, the reason for the season is destruction. And you'd be biblical in saying that. And you say, dude, where are you getting that? Well, I'm getting it from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to destroy something. The reason we're here in this moment right now is because God wants something destroyed. And I know some of you hear that and you're like, wait a minute, what? No, I thought Jesus came to heal people. I thought he came to bring peace. I thought he came to save people. But just think about that for a second. For him to heal people necessarily implies that there's a disease ravaging them. To bring peace assumes that there's a prior state where there is no peace. And to save means that we were previously held captive. And liberation requires destruction. And if we want to be on board with what God is doing in the universe, if we want our new year to be in rhythm with what our God is up to, we need to understand and appreciate this morning that God wants something destroyed. So that leaves us with three questions. Number one is what did he come to destroy? Number two is how did he do it? And number three is how do we participate in his destroying work? And really what we're doing today is this. I know some of you might be here because it's a new year, time to turn over a new leaf. And you're like, you know what? I want some new principles on how to live a better life. I just want someone to help me kind of get my life right. I'm trying to lose those last five pounds, right? I'm trying to get myself more organized. I'm trying to wake up earlier to read in the morning and feel intellectual. Just give me some tips. Well, before I give you some practices, we need to get perspective, right? And the reality is we're going to get practical in this series in the next couple of weeks, but we got to get some perspective first of what God is up to in the world so we can join with our work and the work he's already done. And the work he's doing is he wants to destroy something. And you go, what did he come to destroy? Well, the text says the works of the devil. Now, I know some of us hear that and you're like, the devil? Really? 2019, that's what you bring out? Let's talk about the devil. Little guy in a red jumpsuit. Horns, tail, seriously, man, in 2019, you're doing that? Well, let me say this. I think it's interesting that over the last several years, whenever we have a movie come out that we all go see, they make millions and millions of dollars that are kind of thinly veiled spiritual allegories, they all depict a world at war. Harry Potter, the chosen one, right, who has to die and resurrect to defeat evil. Where did they get these ideas? <laughs> Lord of the Rings. It depicts a world in conflict. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford Don, who was an atheist and became a Christian, wrote this. He said, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was it talked so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who was held to be the power behind death and disease and sin. Christianity asserts the universe is at war. And if you don't believe that, then you have to come up with a different philosophy as to why something as beautiful as humanity will do the horrible things we do to each other. Like, how do you explain Somalia? Hundreds of thousands dead because warlords use hunger as a weapon. And you say, well, it's education. They lack education in Africa, Ben. When, when Oprah's done, everything will be fine. Well, then how do you explain Nazi Germany? Millions murdered by the most educated nation of its day. You say, we've evolved since then. 
then how do you explain the, the millions upon millions murdered by their own governments in the 20th century? How do you explain our own hearts? That even if we don't believe in a, a divine morality, we have our own standards that we constantly fail and we feel this low-grade sense of shame of why am I not what I am meant to be? There's something not right about this place. There's something wrong with us. And the reality is the Bible will press this. This is. And are there physical problems we should deal with? Absolutely. And the Bible cares about that. It cares about your health. God didn't just create disembodied spirits playing make-believe harps. He created in Genesis a real world and dirt and people with skin and bones that ate things that taste good. God cares about the physical world, right? And he cares about feeding the hungry. Is it politics? Are there political solutions? God cares about it. Politics is our, our codified way of how we're going to treat each other. And God cares a lot about how we treat each other. But behind and underneath, much of our problems in this world is not even necessarily primarily a physical solution or a relational solution. There's a spiritual issue. And it's interesting, just recently for me, reading books of people that didn't believe in God came to belief in God. Not because they suddenly dawned on them, there must be someone benevolent up above, but it's because they saw such darkness in the world. One of them was a dad who watched his son descend into using meth, wrote a book about it, Beautiful Boy. And at one point in the book, he says, I don't believe in God. But as he saw what this drug would do to human beings, he said, only the devil could create this. The humanity had stolen from my son. And he came to belief in God through his belief and there's something dark out here. The lead guitarist to Korn, not a believer in God. But when he saw the darkness his world was in, he says, this is more than just some bad influences socially. There's something spiritually dark. My soul doesn't feel right here. And his belief in God came through a belief and there's something dark out there, right? That our battle is a spiritual battle. It's interesting, Matthew Paris wrote an article for the Times UK a few years ago. And it was a bombshell of an article because he's an atheist. And the article was entitled, As an Atheist, I Truly Believe Africa Needs God. And in the article, he recounts his experience of visiting Malawi, where he grew up as a boy, to work with an organization that was providing clean water, which is a wonderful thing to do. But as he was doing that, he wrote this. He says, it inspired me. And it renewed my flagging faith in developmental charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life. But an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It's a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, if you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation's part of the package, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or a school and say the world would be better without it. So I would allow that if the faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It's transferred to the flock. 
This is the effect that matters so immensely. I cannot help observing the Christians were different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appears to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in dealing with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. And then he ended the article here. Those who want Africa to walk tall amid the 21st century global competition must not kid themselves that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the change. A whole belief system must be supplanted. And I'm afraid it has been supplanted by another. Removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike and the witch doctor, the mobile phone and the machete. He says, I don't want to admit it, but when I look at Africa, the physical help is good. The education is essential, but what's really going to change people is a spiritual transformation of their hearts. And let me tell you something. We do need some changes in our practices. You do need to make some recalibrations of your life in 2019. We're going to get into how to change our practice, but we need to change our perspective. We need a new identity before this new activity. And the reality is there's a spiritual work that must be done, and we live in the context of warfare. And the Bible says our battle's not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers of this present darkness. There's something dark out there and it transcends race and culture and economics and education. And the Bible will say it's orchestrated. It's orchestrated. And it's called the devil, which means accuser, Satan, which means opponent. Jesus called him the ruler of this world. Paul called him the God of this age. John says, we know that we're from God, but the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. And Ephesians 2 says he's the spirit now at work in the sons of disobedience, which sounds like a bad band name, but it's talking about us, that something's wrong here, right? And it's a consciousness and he's working. And you go, well, what's his work? Well, it said in verse eight, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil sinned from the beginning. Sin means there's a mark we were supposed to hit and we didn't hit it. There's something we're meant to be and we're not it. And we all feel that and are trying to find self-help books to get us to solve it. And what the Bible will say is God made us to be a certain thing and we are not it. How did that happen? It says in the text that everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Now, by lawlessness, it doesn't mean that God's up there with a little tablet looking down at you and being like, did she just cuss? What did you say? All right, potty mouth, you're off the list, okay? How much have you had to drink tonight? Hmm? Can you blow into this, please? You're cut, right? That's not what it means. It means that when God created the world, he created it to work a certain way, that there are physical laws that make sense, right? Rain falls down, waters crops, crops grow, we eat it, right? That sort of thing. And there's also emotional laws as well, that parents are meant to raise children with love and support to see their gifts and access them for our good. Men are meant to cherish and respect and encourage women. Women are meant to honor and encourage and respect men. And we're all meant to care for each other because that's an environment where we all thrive emotionally. And there are spiritual laws. We're meant to know God and find our souls met in love with him and then be a conduit of his love to other people. That's the way the world works. But it says the devil came at the very beginning to upend all that. And so he came and began to distance us emotionally from God. And he said, he's holding out on you. 
You really want to live your life? You don't need an allegiance to this deity. You need to go your own way. You be the arbiter of good and evil. You decide what's right and wrong. You decide what's good and evil. You make those decisions for yourself. You go, girl. You go, man. That's what the devil put out. And when we broke faith from God, everything broke. And it says our foolish hearts went dark. There's something wrong with us. And turning over a new leaf isn't going to bring light into our soul. Something else is needed, right? And what's the answer? It's interesting. Alexander Solzhenitsyn said it this way. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and all that was necessary was to separate us from the rest of those and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the hearts of every human being. It's gotten into all of us. We're all infected. What's the answer? What was the answer in Genesis? Did God show up and say, how dare you? I'm going to give you a list of rules and I'm going to leave for about a millennia. And when I get back in here, this world better be cleaned up. Is that what God says? No. With the shame of their sin still on them, God says in Genesis 3.15, it says, the Lord God said to the serpent, I will put enmity, that is hatred, between you and this woman, between your seed and hers. And then he does something interesting. He says, and he, he refers to the seed of a woman with a singular male pronoun, a boy, which is interesting because women don't have seed, which I don't have time to get into. Uh, You can ask your parents later, but there's gonna be a boy who uniquely comes from a woman and he will crush your head while you bruise his heel. Fascinating that in the very third chapter of the Bible, God predicts our solution, not as a list of rules, but as a hero. That what you need is not a list, you need a liberator. What you need is not a new habit, you need a hero. The solution to your shame that is dragging you down, that is even now undermining your sense of being able to accomplish all you're meant to be under God, what you need is a savior. That's God's solution. I'm sending a boy to crush the one who deceived you. And the rest of the Bible is about the arrival of that boy. What will he be like? And you remember when he shows up in the world, we talked about this at Christmas. To Luke, it was a celebration. You read his birth accounts in Luke's, it's like a musical. Mary's singing, Elizabeth's singing, Zacharias is singing, angels are singing. I mean, it's just, it's so happy, it's upbeat, right? But you read Matthew's, And Matthew, what happens? Herod feels threatened by the arrival of this king and starts slaughtering babies. You see a darkness into this world that Jesus has come into. His parents have to escape, raise him in secret. And do you remember when he steps out on his 30th birthday, he goes to get baptized. Holy Spirit descends on him. God says from heaven, this is my son. What's the very next thing that happens? Out into the wilderness, the devil begins to tempt him like Adam. But do you remember Jesus is fending him off with Deuteronomy quotes? And finally, the enemy in frustration says, I will give you everything as the God of the sage. I'll give you everything. Just stop doing what you're here to do. And do you remember Jesus' response? He said, no, man, sorry, I can't help you. That's a rough translation. That's like the message version. But that's what he says, right? (laughs) And we're told that he comes with the power of the Holy Spirit back into his hometown, walks into the synagogue in front of all the people, asks for the scroll of Isaiah. Turns to the passage. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to proclaim release to the captives. I am here to set you free. Watch me. 
and he came out to do damage against the kingdom of darkness. People racked by disease, he begins to heal. Women covered by shame because of abusive and broken relationships with men, he is gentle with them and kind and lifts their head. Men who had devastated their lives because of their selfishness, he gives dignity back and a sense of purpose. You see, he is pulling back the darkness and bringing light and life back into the souls of people, changing their identity, which renovates their activity. You don't need a list first. You need a liberator. Does he have things for you to do? You bet, but not until you understand what he's done. And he comes to do damage against the dark, right? Did you ever wonder why demons are always screaming in the gospels? Does anyone ever scream when you walk in the room? Maybe if you got a wild new haircut. Someone's like, wow, look at you, right? That's it. <laughs> Jesus walks into churches and people are screaming and falling out. Why? Well, it's interesting. There's one moment where Jesus is asked why he's here. Like someone asked him like, what are you trying to do? What's your goal? And uh, try explaining this next time. Someone asks you like a spiritual question. Okay, you seem to be into Jesus. I heard you went to church. What's that all about? Try this explanation. Say, Jesus was like, you know, uh, picture a guy He's strong, he's got armor on, and he's got a bunch of stuff. Now picture a stronger guy who beats him up and steals his things. That's Jesus. You don't believe me? Luke chapter 11, Jesus talking, says, when a strong man fully armed guards his house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him his armor on which he relied and distributes his plunder. Do you know why the demons were running when he showed up? It's because the stronger one's here. My favorite is, do you remember the guy that was running around naked in the tombs screaming? Jesus walks up and there's a legion of demons in him. Do you remember what they said? They said, ah, son of God, are you here to torment us before the appointed time? It's like they knew a whooping was coming. They just thought he was early. They were like, oh man, it's more we wanted to do. But listen to me, some of you, you got the best intentions. You're like, 2019 is going to be the year. But there's always a voice inside of you that says, no, it's not. You're going to be doomed because of your past. You're going to be just like your father. You're never going to accomplish what you're meant to accomplish. You'll never be what God made you to be. You will never ascend to the heights that you dream about. You're a joke. You're going to wallow in the self-pity that's been defining your life so far. Some of you feel so captive by the things you're hoping there's an answer to. And I'm telling you, the answer for you is not a list of rules. It's a liberator. And the good news I have this morning is the stronger one is here. The stronger one is here. And before you step into some practical solutions for your life, which we're going to get into, you need to embrace the Savior who's in the business of setting people free. As his career reached its climax, do you remember he gathered his disciples around them and he said, I'm headed to Jerusalem and I'm going to die there. Peter sidebars him and rebukes him. Don't be so negative. No messiahs are dying around me. Buck up, buddy. And do you remember what Jesus says to him? He looks right through Peter and says, get behind me. Satan. He said, there's a darkness trying to keep me from that cross, but that's exactly what I'm here to do. And he set his face like stone towards Jerusalem. And on the night he was betrayed, John tells us in chapter 12, he told his disciples, now is the judgment of the world. The ruler of this world will be cast out. He said in verse 16, the ruler of this world is judged. How did he do it? By perpetrating violence, attacking the Romans? No. Hebrews 2 tells us, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, 
and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The greatest weapon in the enemy's hand is to condemn you because of your sin, because you are not what you're meant to be. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, was buried in death, and then rose victorious. The one weapon the enemy has to defeat you, Jesus took out of his hand and buried it in that cross. Your sin, your shame, buried because of the finished work of Jesus, living the perfect life you could not, dying the death you deserved. Why? So he could set you free. And I love the way Colossians 2 says it. It says, you were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions. Anyone feel the need to be forgiven today? He canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. Anybody feel like they're having to measure up to a standard and can't get there? That consisting of decrees that were hostile to us, he took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. He didn't nail a list of rules there. He nailed himself there. He took your shame for you. And then he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them, triumphing over them through him. I love that because the original audience would have known what that meant. Three times the Bible uses the word triumph and the triumph was an event. It's kind of like a parade. And the way the triumph would work is if there was a city and we found out that our enemies were attacking us, that's a stressful thing, right? Because when your enemies attack you, uh, they usually killed all the men, ran off of the women and burned down the village. It's kind of a bummer, right? So you were incentivized to cheer for the home team, right? So when you found out that your king and the army were going to attack those who were coming to get you, you're hoping and praying for your king's victory. And then a messenger crests the hill and runs back into town and says, our king is victorious, right? You don't go, oh, good, we'll give him our best. You go, that's amazing. I'm gonna live and not die. I have a future, I get to see my kids. I get to walk in freedom. And what happens at that moment? He says, now the king is coming. You don't go, oh, well, I'll give him a list of restaurants. No, you start getting things ready, right? It's like if the in-laws are coming over, right? If the road is crooked, you make it straight. If it's got valleys, you lift them up. If it's got hills, you make them low. You make straight a path for his entrance. You would scrub all the buildings. You'd put their kids in their best clothes. And then you would go out to meet him at the entrance of the city to walk him into the city and welcome him as a conquering hero. And meanwhile, the king would not just kind of ride in with the gore of battle still on him. He'd be out there getting cleaned up. He'd put on his best robes. He'd get on a white horse or a chariot pulled by a white horse. And on the given day, he would host a triumph and he would ride into the city to the cheers of his people, the victorious king. But it wasn't just him in the triumph. There were two other main groups. One was the enemy king and he would be tied to the back of the chariot, usually naked because naked people run around on the streets look funny. And that was the goal. I'm gonna show you the one who used to oppress you is powerless. That which used to crush you, I have crushed on your behalf. I set you free. And then behind them was all of our friends that had been liberated, rescued by the victorious king. And they would wear white linen, bright and clean, and they'd carry centuries of incense to wave them so that the whole city and themselves most of all would be filled with the aroma of our victorious king. 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God, 
who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. What you need today is not laws. You need a liberator. What you need is not a list. You need a hero. And thanks be to God, we have someone who has set us free and guides us into the victory of our conquering king. That's what the gospel presents to us. Because there's two ways Jesus destroys the work of the devil. One was by his space-time appearing on earth and on that cross. The other way is when his space-time arrival into your soul. The very next verse says, no one who's born of God practices sin because the seed abides in him. He cannot sin because he's born of God. It says that when you come to put your faith in Jesus, it's like God plants a very seed inside of you. He changes you constitutionally. That how is the power of sin broken in our life? How are you gonna get freedom from that thing that haunts you in the dark that you hope none of us ever find out about? How do you get freedom from the power of that? Not through your effort, but through his. That you look to him and say, man, he has given me a new identity son and daughter of God. And that empowers me to have a new activity. Before I step into a new situation, he gives me a new constitution that Jesus destroys the work of the devil on that cross and he destroys the power of the devil in your life when he comes to you and says, no longer do you walk in darkness, sister. I'm calling you home. No longer are you an orphan young man. I am making you my son. No longer are you a broken one, sweet child. I am making you whole. No longer are you a child of darkness. I'm bringing you into the light. It's when he steps in and makes you something new. And that new identity empowers you to a whole new activity. That's what happened with David and Goliath. You remember what the Israelite army was doing when Goliath was out there? It said every day they would come up and chant the war cry. It's like us every January. I'm gonna lose 10 pounds. I'm gonna read two books a month. I'm gonna write. And then Goliath comes up and we're like, never mind, I'm gonna eat chips and be sad, right? And like, everything broken. What happens? Little shepherd boy from Jerusalem, or Bethlehem comes up, slays that big enemy, right? And do you notice what happened? The army of Israel that was once so afraid when they saw that our victor who stood in our place overcame the big enemy, do you know what they did? It says they chased the Philistines right out of town. How are you gonna chase some of those addictions out of your life? How are you gonna chase some of those toxic ways of relating to your family out of your life? How are you gonna chase some of that shame out of your life that's stealing all your energy and vibrancy? Let me tell you something. The big shadow of death will cause you to cower every time, but when you realize our substitute, the son of David that came from Bethlehem, slew the giant of death, that's what's gonna empower you to race out and drive the Philistines out of your life. So we're gonna talk about how to build, beat some Philistines in the next couple weeks, but you gotta get on board with the hero and what he's doing in your life first. First, because here's the reality. The best fighters are the ones who know they've been fought for. The best fighters are the ones who know what it is to be fought for. We believe this about kids. That's why when we see children that are abandoned or we want to come near them, support them, because we know statistically kids that are left on their own suffer far more in every measurable category than ones that know what it is to have parents that protect them, care for them, provide for them, and cut awake in this dangerous world. Kids who know they've been protected and fought for know how to fight for themselves and live. That's what the Spartans knew. So much about the Spartans we should not emulate as people, right? I won't go into the details, they're grim. But 
They were very good at warfare. And part of what caused them to fight so ferociously is because they knew their king didn't sit at the back of the battle on his throne going, go die for me, peons. He led the fight. And they would watch their king run into the darkness on their behalf before they had done a thing. While they were still back there, kind of scared. They would watch their king run into the darkness for them. And that inspired them. I want to run, not to earn his approval, but because I have it. Not to earn his fighting for me. He's already fighting before I entered the fight. But when I watch him fight, it empowers me to fight. The greatest fighters are the ones who know what it is to be fought for. They were unbeatable in their day. And it's the same with you and me. How are you going to beat the addiction in your life? I'll tell you what's not gonna do it, all that piling on of shame. You'll never amount to something. You'll always be less than. You'll never be more than. You'll never be enough. That sense of trying to get out of that when you're weary and tired, you'll fail again. But if you know my God in heaven isn't shaming me or condemning me, he loves me. My God in heaven is a victorious king who fought for me and all my stories end in victory in Jesus' name. If I believe that, that gives me the courage to fight. If I know I'm loved, it can step me out to love the world. If he fought for me, then I'll fight alongside him. You're gonna find victory when you know the victorious one and tuck right in behind him. That's why we're talking about this first. You got it? All right. So we gotta close with one thing though, and that is this. The text says that whoever his seed abides in him does not sin. Indeed, he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, some of us, I know when I read that earlier, probably made you nervous. That you're like, wait a minute. Are you saying people who trust Jesus never sin? Uh, Because I might have sinned once in 2018 earlier or on the way here when my roommate wouldn't hurry up and get in the car, right? He goes, this passage teaching sinless perfection. The only way you know your God's is if you're perfect. Well, no. There's two ways you know that. One's the verb tense in Greek and The ESV translates it great. It's the one who practiced sin because the verb tense is in the present active. It implies continuous action. What it's saying is not the person who ever sins. It's saying the person who indulges in unrepentantly, triumphantly dives into the very things Jesus came to destroy. If you revel in what cost our Savior his life, you gotta wonder if you really know him. You gotta wonder that. We don't revel in what he came to destroy. But does that mean you have to be perfect? No, it doesn't. And you don't even need to know Greek to know that. You just gotta read the whole book. Because in 1 John at the beginning, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. John, the very same book tells you, if you say you're without sin, you're lying. And that's a sin. So if you say I haven't sinned, you're sinning because that's a sin, sinner. So no one in here is pristine. I don't know if you know that. Everyone in here is a mess. And the beginning of a faith journey with God is admitting that, right? And you say, I am a mess, but praise God, you came to rescue captives and set them free. So is he proclaiming perfection? No. But can you see progress? Yes. We don't abide in sin. We abide in him. We are not perfect, but when our king sets us free, we are empowered to take steps. And as we talk in the next couple weeks, there is substantial healing that can happen in your life. Good practices you can adopt to make you more and more of who you are, but it will come through progress and it will come through struggle, right? 
Two illustrations to close. First, I remember the first time my wife and I ever bought a house. It was in College Station, Texas. Previous owner had, had like 40 dogs that all lived indoors and a lot of rabbits, like a lot. Like, like he got a, like a newspaper, Rabbits Quarterly. I'm not making that up. Like we got it for years. I'm like, I didn't know rabbits had a quarterly. <laughs> they do. So the house was a bit of a wreck and the yard, all the grass was dead. No grass, but there were weeds, hundreds of weeds. And when I say weeds, I don't mean like little weeds on the ground. I mean robust, angry, taller than me weeds throughout the entire yard. Now question, how do the neighbors know that a new resident moved in? Because I took a weed eater and I went to work out there. And I gotta tell you, I felt like a little man, like in a coleslaw, because I don't know if you've ever hit weeds bigger than you. It sprays kind of wet little slivers of weeds on you. I'm like, ah, right? Went crazy. And then we started bagging up and throwing weeds away. And we started putting out, you know, like seeds and mulch and grass and whatnot. And after a couple months, was it a beautiful, pristine green lawn? <laughs> no, no, but there was a little bit of grass. Were there still weeds? Yeah, but there was some grass. But it still looked pretty rough, so much so that if you were new to town and you just drove through our cul-de-sac, you might look at our yard and go, clearly nobody lives there. Look at all those weeds. Look at that very little amount of grass. And you'd be wrong, you judgmental person. <laughs> because what you didn't see was the progress over time. You see that? There are some of us in here that say, man, you Christians are such hypocrites. And the answer is, you're right. We're a mess. And yet by the grace of God, there's a little more grass and there's a few less weeds because he's working on us. So you who want to judge the fruit of the believers, you be careful. On the night Jesus was betrayed, two men went running off into the dark, Judas and Peter. And if you and I were standing there and I was like, quick, which one's really saved and which one's not? You would have probably said, Oh, neither, but you'd be wrong. Judas never knew Jesus. It says the devil had entered him. Peter rejected even knowing Jesus, but what happened? Afterwards, he was convicted and he cried. Did he get his life back together? Not by himself. Jesus showed up on his beach though and said, Peter, get over here. I got breakfast for you, man and I love you, and I'm not giving up on you. And so you be careful if you wanna judge, because you might condemn a Peter with a Judas, and that's not right. But what we see is struggle, but we see progress. Less weeds, more grass over time. That's how you know you're his, he's working on us. And all of us who have this hope, purify ourselves, because he's pure. I know I'm gonna see him, so I wanna become more like him. So like a bride on her wedding day, I am ready when he comes. No bride on her wedding day just sits on the couch binge watching Netflix. She gets ready. So that when they say it's time, she goes, oh, is it? And looks fantastic, right? and say, we know he's coming for us. And so we wanna get ready, but it will be progress and it will be struggle. There are ways to progress, ways to struggle. That's what these next couple weeks are about, trying to help you, but we gotta get perspective before we get the practice. Last story I would say 
is for me, I, I imagine a battlefield. And as I think about a battlefield, there are people on the battlefield that are agitated, nervous, scared, afraid. You go, who is that person? Who's the person on a battlefield that is lacking peace and struggling? I'll tell you who it is. It's the person who's alive. The dead don't fear when a bomb goes off. They don't duck when a bullet zips by. It's the alive that are most aware of the battle. So let me just speak that over some of you. Some of you, you've wrestled with an addiction for so long. You've wrestled with the shame for so long that you have battled with it. The thoughts that don't leave you alone. And many times you've thought, no one who really knows God would struggle like this. No one who God really loves would still have this problem. No one who really is loved by God would deal with this. But let me tell you something. The fact that you're aware of the battle is an indicator that you're really alive. It's not the dead who struggle. It's the alive. And when he brings you to life in Christ, you are suddenly aware of the brokenness all around you and the broken in you. And you say, I am a mess, but praise be to God who leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests us through the aroma of him in every place. You be encouraged. You're not meant to live in defeat and there are ways to step into substantial healing and victory. That's where we're going in this series about the fight. But before you start the fight, you need to know the one who fought for you. Before you start mapping out solutions, you need to come to the Savior. You don't need a list of laws. You need a liberator. You can form some good habits, but you need to know the hero. And so before we step out of here, if I can give you one application point, a word that shows up in the text multiple times is the word abide. The word abide in Greek means stay right here. That was Jesus' number one command to his disciples. What do you want us to do? Do you want us to charge the mountains and convert everyone? And he's like, I just want you to stay right here. Be close to me. Because the more you're with me, the more you'll be like me. So some of you, maybe you have questions about all this. I don't know what to think about any of this. That's okay, man. God's not scared of your questions and we aren't either. Just don't leave. Just keep coming back. Just investigate it. Just, just keep coming. Some of you, maybe you're here and you're like, you know what, I heard all I needed. If God is in the business of rescuing broken people, I'm a broken person, rescue me. And he wants you and that's him working in you and praise God and we're gonna pray together in a moment. And for others of you, you may say, Ben, I've known him for years, but I'm struggling and that's okay. It's the alive who struggle. Let's abide in him. Let's get into his word. Let's tuck in near him. Let's get in community together. Because as we walk together behind him, there will be progress. There will be struggle, but there will be progress. So you just stay close because those who are near him become more like him. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be uplifting to others, then be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church Podcast.